Good morning. It's good to see you all today. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 14, but uh, y'all know me. I, I sort of bounce around a little. So if you have your Bible today, be a good day for it. We're going to sort of jump around to some different verses. Uh, if you don't, though, that's fine. I'll, I'll read them out loud uh, when we get to them. Some of you uh, know that uh, before Maylin, my wife and I moved here to Georgia, I worked as a therapist. Um, I had trained as a, as a marriage and family therapist in Mississippi. Uh, and part of that training had been an internship where you would see your own clients, but then you might also go um, to sort of therapist office around the community and sit in with them to see how established practicing professionals um, practice therapy. Uh, one option that was common that I, that I partook of was to go to a day treatment facility. This was a facility that had the patients would come every day from like nine to five. There were usually a couple different diagnoses happening. There was a, usually a substance issue along with another mental disorder. And so these people would spend all day at the treatment facility. And what would happen is this, there's a rotating cast of therapists and you'd come in at maybe Monday at nine o'clock would be the addictions therapist. And so he would come in and he would walk you through the 12 steps, right? Uh, maybe you do one step a week or something like that. On Tuesday, it might be the trauma therapist, and she'd come in and you'd talk about sort of hard things that had happened and relationships and work through that. But the, it seemed like the most popular therapist, the one that everyone was really interested in talking with, was the dream therapist. And she'd come in on Wednesdays like Joseph in Egypt, and she'd say, who has a dream they want to share today? And some brave person would venture forth, and we would spend the next hour interpreting the dream. And she'd talk about symbols and about the subconscious and about universal archetypes. And, and sometimes it seemed like it was helpful, like it helped someone, help them make sense of their experiences, maybe understand themselves better. Sometimes it seemed like maybe it wasn't as helpful. <laughs> you know, there, there's something interesting about dreams. They're these quasi-mystical experiences, right? And depending on when you live in history, they, they may be unimportant at all. It's just what you ate for dinner last night. That's what dreams are. That's sort of the cultural script, right? Different times in history, the script has been, this is a way to understand, you know, the, the hidden secrets of the mind, right? Or, or at other times in history, these sort of, they've been, these spirit, they've been seen as these spiritual experiences. Here's some, some sort of message from above, right? I think what was, in, what was so attractive about this therapist for the patients actually was that she gave them a script to understand. Here are these experiences. Here's what you do with them. Here's how you interpret them. Here's how you move forward from them. Um, and, you know, as the patients progressed in therapy, you would see that they would begin to take on that script and they would begin to sort of apply it to one another. If, if a person started telling a dream before the therapist said anything, they'd say, wait, 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 you mentioned a house. Doesn't that mean... That means they're talking about this, right? Or you mentioned a car. Well, we know cars represent, you know, and, and the script would sort of get embedded. Now, thinking about scripts and how we make sense of the world makes me think about other scripts that we have in our society related to spirituality, right? Here's one that I come across pretty frequently. See if it sounds familiar to you. Um, I'm a spiritual person. Sometimes it gets paired with not religious. So you'll hear people say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. I was meeting with a, a young woman the other day, very intelligent, uh, very kind-hearted, the kind of person you would describe as open to the world, open to what the world has to teach her. And she said, I, uh, she said you know, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I, I don't go to church. I'm spiritual, but I'm, I'm not very religious. It's kind of the script, right? Uh, I have another colleague who um, is a, a scientist through and through, also an, a kind of open person, and she has a painting of the Buddha behind her desk. And she has an evil eye that she hangs on her door handle. 
And I, one time I asked her about, well, what's, what's going on here? And she, she sort of seemed a little self-conscious. She kind of said, well, you know, ward off evil intentions. Um, there's a script. There's something in our sort of way of thinking about these things that holds the pieces together. Christian Smith, a highly regarded sociologist of American religiosity, he put it this way. He said, Americans have adopted an approach to religion that's distinct from historical patterns. Instead of a model of religiosity centered around the community, they have what Smith calls a personal identity accessory approach to religion. The human self, he writes, in this version of religion is not an object with a nature that needs formed with respect to the good, but rather a subject of self-development, seeking to identify, affirm, and enact authentic life concerns. And you can see how this changes then the way that we interact with one another, the way we interact with the community. The congregation functions as a supportive association. It aids members in pursuing their authentic life concerns, coping with life, and making good decisions. So you see the script there. Right? And, and we could imagine, we, Smith doesn't go into this, but we could even go further and, and think about how mystical experiences would fit into that. How the sort of, you know, the pursuit of, of things like um, these spiritual experiences, talking about in 1 Corinthians, or even things like meditation and, and sort of seeking these kind of mountaintop experiences, how they would fit in. They might exist to help me overcome, to live authentically, maybe to discover my identity. So that's us. That's what's in the water in American culture. Uh, but you may be asking, what does this have to do with 1 Corinthians, right? What, what does this have to do with Paul and his letter? Well, a couple of things. The first thing is that the Corinthians also have a script. And that seems to be what Paul is concerned with. They're this young church. They actually are probably pretty close to the age of St. Thomas, right? So they're about five or seven years old, but with none of the sort of heritage of faith, right? There's, there's no C.S. Lewis for a Corinthian Christian. There's no, I don't, Daniel, if you can imagine, there's no N.T. Wright for the Corinthians. Um, the, the Jewish converts would have had some background in the word of the Lord, right, in the scriptures, but, but for the Gentile converts, there wouldn't have been any of that. What they would have had, though, is a history in the pagan temples. They would have had a script that they could pull on from that. And, you know, those, those temples, they have mystical experiences associated with them, right? The enemy is a great copycat. And so as the Spirit, as the Holy Spirit, blessed the Corinthians with prophecy and wisdom and spiritual insight, the Corinthians may have recalled something that passed for prophecy in the pagan temples, right? These sort of confused messages from an oracle that you would have to piece together to find some kind of hidden knowledge. Similarly, when the, some of the saints at Corinth were blessed with this mystical ability to speak in unlearned languages, they may have remembered these garbled, chaotic experiences in the temples. And naturally enough, they were pulling on those past experiences to write the script for how they would use these newfound experiences. Pagan temples were a place to experience the divine, maybe to be chosen by the divine, which would bring with it a lot of honor. And so as they experienced the gift of the Spirit, they naturally began to think of it in those terms. Our gatherings should be about experiencing the divine and maybe being chosen and about showing ourselves having been honored by the Spirit's presence, that kind of thing. And Paul's concerned right? It's, this has led to a certain chaos in their gatherings, right? And Paul's concerned about that. It's not enough to just tell them what they need to do differently. How, how short would this, this letter be, right? If Paul just gave them the behavioral pieces that they needed. You, uh, let's see, you'd need a little piece of chapter 8, some of chapter 11. You could skip all of 12 and 13, right? And just jump to the end of this chapter. And that would give you just the little recommendations for here's what you need to do when you get together, right? But 
um, that's not enough. Paul's not going there. He's deeply concerned that their behavior means they haven't grasped what God is doing. They're still operating off of the wrong script. So much of, so much of the letter is given not just to telling them what they need to do differently, but to reorienting them, to shifting the way that they think about what God's Spirit is doing. And I think there's something here for us as well. So what I want to do is look then at what Paul does with the Corinthians, and in doing so, pay attention to how his argument may also challenge our own particularly American way of thinking about spiritual experiences and the spiritual life. So chapter 14. Chapter 14 is towards the end of the letter, right? There are only 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. The last one is mostly goodbyes. So we're getting towards the end here, and Paul is working out the application of an argument in chapter 14 that he began several chapters earlier. So I'm going to remind you what verse 12 of 14 says, and then we're going to go back and pick up the pieces to try and make sense of what he's saying. So verse 12, So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Like I said, Paul here is applying an argument. That's the so. So, okay, so now we think back to the argument. Here's the application. And what we want to notice in particular is that he links two ideas. Since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. You want to see the Spirit at work in your life? Work to build up the church. Why? Those are two good things, I get that, but why are they connected? What is it about this that's evidence of this? What is it about building up the church that it could serve as evidence of the Spirit and that it should be the way that we seek out evidence of the Spirit? To answer that, we'll need to go back and pick up some of these key pieces. So piece number one, looking at chapter 10, your union to Christ is inseparable from your union to one another. If you look at chapter 10, verse 16, Paul does a really interesting language flip here, right? So he's talking and he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? On the, on the face of it, that makes sense. But think about it for a second. If I eat something, does it become a part of me or do I become a part of it? It becomes a part of me, right? I, that's what digestion is. I incorporate it into my being. But Paul says the very opposite. The bread and wine are a participation in the body of Christ. So when we receive the sacraments, we don't receive them into ourselves. I mean, we do maybe in a different way. But what Paul is trying to say is that we are actually brought into Christ. You are made into Christ's body, right? He's not made into your body. You're made into his in that moment. And there's a lot we could unpack there, maybe a separate sermon. What does it mean that we are Christ's body? Why, why is this not just the bride of Christ, but the body of Christ? Our Savior has so strongly united himself to us that we share in his very being, but there's more. Look at verse 17. Because there is one bread, it, it starts off, right? You, you don't get your own sort of Eucharistic feast, right? We don't go home and celebrate communion by ourselves. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. So we being brought into Christ's body are actually made one, not just with Christ, but with one another. Do you see what Paul's doing here? There's an essential link between your belonging to Christ and your belonging to one another. The very acts which unite you to Christ are the things that weave you into the body. So that's piece number one. In being united to Christ, you are bound to one another. All right. Piece number two. Your union to one another is accomplished by the Spirit of God. 
Look at chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. That, that's piece number one again, right? There's a body with many parts, but they're all part of one body. In verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, last week, Father Daniel preached on this, about our need for one another, about the ways in which the diversity of gifts are given so that we can all hold together, right? But what I want to highlight here today is the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. It's the Spirit that gives life to the body. That's what the Spirit does. Think of the story of creation, right? God forms the man out of the dust, but he's not a living being yet, right? Then he breathes his spirit into him, and that's what makes him a living being. Think of Ezekiel in the Valley of the Bones, right? He prophesies to the bones and they are linked together. This is the vision Ezekiel had, and they're sort of they're covered in flesh, but something's missing. It says there was no breath in them. The spirit has to come in. And when God explains the vision to Ezekiel, he says, I will put my spirit in you, and you will be living beings, right? So the spirit has a purpose, is what I'm trying to get at, that the spirit does something. Another way to think of it, there's a great quote from the Swiss theologian von Balthasar about how the members of the Trinity work together. And he says, everything that God does works like this. It's a gift from the Father to the Son, which the Son returns to the Father, transformed by the Spirit. So think about Jesus' high priestly prayer at the end of the Gospel of John, right? He says, everyone that you have given me, I've kept I've not lost one. And he's representing them to the Father, right? And he's saying, God, or he's saying, Father, let them be one even as you and I are one. What is it that binds us together, Paul says, is the Spirit. The Spirit is what we are all bound together in. We're made a living body through the union brought by the Spirit. And when Christ ascends to the Father, he sends the Spirit to transform the church. So that's piece number two. The Spirit, what the Spirit does is binds us together and animates the people of God. So now we can begin to pull it all together. Now we can make sense of the working of the Spirit and Paul's claim here, right? Look look with me real quick at chapter 12, verse 7. The Spirit has given gifts to each of you for... And what's the rest of it say? The Spirit has given gifts to each of you for the building up of the church. So remember what the Spirit does, it does for the body. That was piece number two, right? And what is the thing that it's doing here? It's giving gifts to the members for the sake of the church. That's what the gifts are for. The Christian doctrine then of spiritual experience is this. They are for the building up of the body. That's our script. That's how we make sense of them, right? Is that, and that's how we pursue them. Like it says at the beginning of chapter 14 that we included in the reading today, right? That pursue love, um, desire the gifts, right? Especially that you may pro- prophesy. Why desire the gifts? We pursue them for the building up of the church. And, and I think, don't think of this in global terms, right? That's the temptation is like, yeah, the church, you know, like the church out there. But that's too big for us. That's not, we need something that's more local in our thinking, I think, for it to actually change the way that we live. So think about it this way. The gifts of the Spirit in your life are for the people in this room. They need it. They need you. When you go to God in prayer, when you ask for Him to be working in your life, when you pursue the spiritual gifts, do so for the sake of the people sitting next to you. 
I was talking with a friend just the other day about the gift of prophecy, and prophecy for Paul is the sort of catch-all for the intellectual gifts, for wisdom, for spiritual insight, for that kind of thing. We're talking about where does this happen in the church today? Is this still something that occurs? And I would say in two places. First, in the reading of the scriptures, right? And hopefully in, in the preaching. <laughs> Sometimes. But I think also there's a lot of prophecy that happens at coffee hour and in community groups. I think any time that the body of Christ is, is gathered together and pursuing love for one another, you can expect the Spirit to be at work. There have been times in my life where a sister or brother has spoken to me and said, Bill, I think you need to think about this. I think you really need to consider this issue. And it's been, there have been times where it has been like that was a word from the Lord. All of a sudden, that cut right to the core of whatever was going on in my life. And I realized, oh, God is speaking to me through this person. I meet with, there's a, a group of men that I meet with from time to time, and one of them in particular, whenever he shares about his experiences in life, whenever he talks, there's this intrusion of love inside of me for him, right? It's this, this reminder, God loves him so much. And I've told him before, I said, hey, I, I think this is from God. I think God is saying that you haven't spent enough time with this. God loves you. And he'll say, yeah, I know. I'll say, no, 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 God loves you. Sit with that. Now, I'm not saying that we write a blank check to intuition. There's discernment here, right? It's not, we don't just sort of go off whatever feels like, it, like it's appropriate. But I do think that we can and ought to expect the Spirit of God to be at work when we're gathered together. So putting Paul's argument together, the gifts of the Spirit are not for the sake of just having an experience. And they're not even directly for the sake of the one being gifted. They have a direction, a goal, the building up of, <clears throat> excuse me, of the body, the building up of the body of Christ. And Paul says that the accomplishment of that goal is evidence of the Holy Spirit being at work among you. And the work of the Spirit, the gifts which the Spirit gives are for the building up of the church. So in conclusion, I'd like to come back to this idea of scripts. Scripts about the purpose of mystical experiences and the truly spiritual life. The Corinthians had their scripts, right? And, and of course, we have ours. As I said at the beginning, there's a script about the spiritual life in our culture, which if we're not careful, we carry over into our expectations of what life with the Spirit is like. The script that says that the spiritual life is about me, about my identity, about fulfillment on an individual level away from all the strains of life. My spirituality gives me the tools to overcome. But the Christian life is different. The work of the Holy Spirit is different. The Holy Spirit calls you not to transcendence or to mindful disinterest, but to engagement. The gift which God gives you are not for your own identity or authentic experiences, not so that you can say, oh, I have this gift, I am this or that, but ultimately for the identity of your sisters and your brothers. So pursue the gifts, pursue the manifestations of the Spirit for the sake of building up the church. Pray that God would give you the gifts your brothers and sisters need, the gifts that those who don't know Christ need in order to be brought into the family of God. Pray for the ability to love the body. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.